This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Economics, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Tim Jones, and my guest today is Tara McKendo-Calder, co-author with Tara Bedi and Rogelio Mercado of Hyperinflation in Zimbabwe, Background, Impact, and Policy, published in 2019 by Palgrave Pivot. Adam Ferguson's history of the Weimar Republic's hyperinflation became a surprise publishing hit in the wake of the 2008-9 financial crisis, more than three decades after its release. Nevertheless, despite the delayed public interest in the detail, the 1923 hyperinflation was already legendary in its impact, and its impact on the German psyche is still palpable today. Yet this is by no means the only hyperinflationary episode in the past century. Indeed, two countries, Venezuela and Lebanon, are experiencing hyperinflation as we speak. The worst ever example was in post-war Hungary, but the second worst took place just 13 years ago in Zimbabwe, when at its peak, prices rose 80 billion percent in a month. In her book, Dr. Mackindo Calder, herself a Zimbabwean who now lives in Dublin, examines the meaning of hyperinflation, how it developed in Zimbabwe, how it was stopped, and how this process compares to, to other hyperinflations. Born and raised in Bulawayo, Tara Mackindo Calder has been an economist at the Central Bank of Ireland since 2011. Having studied development economics with Paul Collier in Oxford, she completed her PhD on money demand, aid shocks, and the impact of land reform in Zimbabwe at Trinity College Dublin under the supervision of Patrick Honohan, who later became her boss at the Central Bank. There she has co-written a series of papers, mostly on the debt overhang and small business in Ireland. Tara, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Tim. Before we start, I think it's essential uh, to define two terms that are going to come up a lot in the discussion. The first is hyperinflation itself, which, as you point out, isn't just very high or very fast price inflation, as we can now see in Sudan, Syria, or even in, in Zimbabwe. Uh, and the second is seniorage. Could you explain to listeners what these two terms mean? Sure, Tim. So hyperinflation, um, as defined by Kagan, is inflation rates of over 50% per month um, for a period of time. So these can be compared to sort of chronic inflation of um, a slightly arbitrary cutoff of 50% um, price rises per month, um, which do happen, you know, fairly regularly. But hyperinflation is, is a situation where prices are rising so quickly and inflation expectations are rising so quickly that um, the sort of demand for holding money falls dramatically. Um, and it, it has a lot of sort of real economic impacts as well as um, monetary impacts. Mm-hmm. 
And then seniorage um, is very interesting. It's the real expenditure governments can generate from printing money. So in normal times, um, governments or the monetary authorities generate revenue just from the act of printing money. They can they can um, buy, you know, real um, goods and services with those. Um, but they typically don't maximize this revenue stream because of the um, relationship between um, inflation at the price level and people's demand to hold money balances. So if inflation increases substantially, people choose to hold less money. And if we think of um, seniorage as um, a, a sort of tax on money and inflation tax, um, the tax base is eroded if people are less likely to hold currency, and hold money balances. So typically governments don't um, maximize this revenue stream, which can be quite substantial. Um, but in hyperinflationary environments, um, governments can use seniorage as one of their revenue options. Um, although it's, it's short-lived because ultimately um, agents just hold so little, you know, demand holds so little um, of the domestic currency that the, um, the currency becomes untenable. Yeah, and as, as you say, you do have something very interesting to say about that in the book, but we'll, we'll come back to that. Um, so in, in April 2009, the power-sharing government in Harare finally withdrew the Zimbabwean dollar from circulation after the worst bout of hyperinflation, in, or sorry, the second worst bout of hyperinflation in world history. Can you take us through the events and the policy decisions that led Zimbabwe from independence to basically the death of, of the Zim dollar? I can do my best. Um, <laughs> so I guess Zimbabwe was one of the countries in sub-Saharan Africa to achieve independence um, pretty late compared to other countries. It achieved its independence in 1980, although it had unilaterally declared independence in 1965. So 1980 saw um, a majority government um, begin ruling the country after a um, protracted um, war in the country in order to achieve that. Um, and international sanctions were decisive in ending um, the war um, and had had, you know, extreme economic impacts. So 1980 was, you know, a time of a lot of sort of positive feeling towards the country, the end of sanctions, um, majority rule government, um, you know, calls for unity. And, you know, there was a big um, bounce in the GDP in the first couple of years of um, the, the country's independence. Um, but they were in, you know, from almost the beginning of the country's independent history, you know, substantial macroeconomic challenges. So first of all, the protected industries, the, the industries that had grown up um, underneath the, in, in a sanctions environment um, were not competitive in a more uh, liberal trade environment. And there were also sort of substantial um, distributional issues which needed to be addressed with um, associated large public expenditures, um, sort of education, housing, etc. And, you know, there were also sort of political, you know, the political stability concerns, um, which, which were substantial over time. So 
um, I guess in, in the 1980s, you know, there was sort of an attempt to introduce some sort of macroeconomic stability, allow, you know, some sort of trade liberalization. Um, and that really in the 1990s, um, despite substantial concerns, for example, with climate events, which had big effects on both welfare, affecting um, the ability of the um, rural, predominantly rural population to grow and harvest their own food. Um, you know, there was um, a almost a sort of demand by indigenous manufacturing and business owners for a more liberal environment. So Zimbabwe was one of the few places that sort of um, voluntarily went into structural adjustment with um, the big um, donors, uh, um, agencies, IMF and the World Bank. But it it were it's it's difficult for these four newly independent countries. And actually, I've done some work comparing Ireland to Zimbabwe, which mm. sounds um, bizarre. <laughs> but in fact, you know, one of the parallels is that it does take, you know, some time for um, countries to sort of fully internalize um, what, you know, living in a sort of um, independent, um, economically liberal. Um, environment means for fiscal expenditure, basically. Mm. So there were big challenges with um, with um, the structural adjustment programs in the 90s, exacerbated, as I say, by um, some very substantial droughts, which were very detrimental. Um, and then at the end of the 1990s, there were sort of two events. First of all, the, the country chose to go into um, into a conflict, an armed conflict. Um, mm. supporting the Democratic Republic of Congo and secondly um, chose to pay very large pensions to or pensions to a very large interest group the war veterans um, at the end of the 1990s and those things were not um, funded um, mm. using the existing sort of funding options available to the country so you know um, if you can't raise tax, if you can't raise external debt, if you can't get um, aid agencies to pay for these things, then one of the few remaining options is monetary financing. Mm -hmm. And so that's exactly what happened, um, which, you know, resulted in, in very high rates of inflation um, from sort of 2000 onwards. Although the inflation profile, you know, wasn't consistently low between 1980 and um, 2000, it was sort of um, managed or more manageable. So perhaps there were inflation rates of close to 20% in some of those years, but they were relatively short-lived and were usually associated with things like droughts or civil conflict, um, other um, impacts on the productive capacity of the country. Um, but the, the sort of inflation that was initiated by this um, military adventure and these uh, pensions to the war veterans, mm. um, as well as the land reform then, which had a big impact on the productive capacity of the country, just meant that it, it became very difficult for the government to find other ways to finance its budget other than um, monetary financing. Mm. Well, I mean, those are all quite um, uh, issues that are quite specific to Zimbabwe, but in chapter three, you run through the history of hyperinflations and you find a common causal pattern. Um, can you talk us through these? Yes, exactly. So that was one of the um, really nice 
um, extensions to the the work that published in um, Applied Economics that um, Rogelio brought to the book, um, the sort of nice comparison with historic hyperinflations. And um, as we lay out in the book, sort of hyperinflation is, you know, it, it happens, but it's quite rare. I think mm -hmm. we talk about sort of less than 50, probably less than 30 um, if hyperinflationary events um, since the since 1900. So, but the, the common theme is that, it, you know, universally hyperinflation is due to monetary financing. So it is due to um, the monetary authority not being distinct or independent from the fiscal authority. Um, and it occurs when there is large pressure on the um, fiscal authority when the government cannot easily finance um, its um, its own budget. So this usually happens when there, or it often happens where there is um, large negative impacts on the productive capacity of the country. For example, immediately after a war, um, for for example, in um, Germany and other um, European countries between the two world wars and, and indeed after the second world war. So countries experience um, damage due to the war itself or may lose a large portion of um, the country due to the, the treaties at the end of wars. Um, and it, But this can also happen, for example, when countries transition from command economies to market economies. So it's it's not the market economy per se, it's the, the new way that the um, government is required to manage its, its um, expenditure, basically. Mm. So in that way, I think um, we, we find that the Zimbabwean hyperinflation is most similar to the hyperinflation, in fact, in the Democratic Republic of Congo in the mid-1990s. So precipitated by um, large negative impact to productive capacity um, and then the monetary authorities not being able to find any alternate ways to finance expenditure um, and then sort of the currency losing credibility. Hmm. And in, in the book, uh, I forget I forget where, but you refer to the the spillovers from hyperinflation into into daily life, the mass migration in search of hard currency to remit home, the departure of health workers, um, and a consequent drop in immunizations, spike in cholera and maternal deaths, and, and this idea of teachers having to make ends meet by smuggling essentials over the border. And, and this is something I've always found hard to grasp. What it what it really means to live somewhere where prices are doubling on a daily basis. How, how do retailers even know how to price anything? Is, is, is most business essentially done between hoarders and consumers and, and, and you know, standard economic uh, activity basically changes overnight? Um, yeah, so it, it, the sort of real impacts of um, monetary phenomena are, mm. you know, astounding and very far-reaching um, and so what you describe is accurate that um, alternate ways of doing business alternate ways of purchasing and selling um, you know did eventuate in Zimbabwe but it didn't happen overnight mm -hmm. um, so the the very high inflation levels happened overnight well very quickly um, 
And that had big, as you say, knock-on effects to how businesses um, were able to price their own goods, keep stock on the shelves, especially in an environment where the government was, you know, not keen to accept that it was part of the reason for the high inflation. And so it did um, implement price controls at various times um, because it it sort of maintained that the private sector was bidding up prices speculatively, which was mm. causing the destabilization, causing the hyperinflation and having these really negative real effects um, on people's um, welfare. So, you know, that then had very substantial um, real effects and that there were no goods on the shelves then if, if um, shop owners were not allowed to price, mm. you know, price the hyperinflation in or the very high inflation rates in, um, it was very difficult for them to restock. So there was, you know, and, and sort of crucial things like um, fuel, for example, were price controlled um, always and also subsidized by the government. Mm. So, um, you know, when the currency became non-convertible, when we couldn't use our own currency to purchase fuel, um, you know, from our neighbors, from South Africa, for example, then there were large shortages of even things like that, which were controlled goods and, you know, were price controlled and the government um, had, had subsidized them for a long time, as is the case in many um, African countries that don't produce their own oil. So in the early 2000s, not only did we have this very destabilizing um, land reform process, which you know, displaced over 200,000 farm workers. Um, so there was huge amounts of unemployment, but then there were huge shortages and things due to the inflation, for example, mm. fuel. So they were just, people spent hours and hours and hours um, queuing in their cars to get fuel in order to go about their daily um, work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, teachers and nurses and doctors were spending large portions of their time um, in fuel queues, sort mm. of overnight waiting for, there might be a rumor that a fuel, you know, fuel would arrive. Um, and it took a long time for these, they were termed runners, so people who were able to go across the border, small, you know, individuals go across the border, buy real goods to come and sell them at home. And I think in the book we mentioned that, um, civil servants were able to go to South Africa without the need for a visa. Oh, yeah. So this was a, a very viable um, outside option for them, you know, when their, their real wages weren't keeping up with inflation. Yeah. But it took time for all of those things to um, become established. And also it, it relied on having, you know, the right contacts, um, you know, at the right time and the right places. So, you know, th there was a lot of hardship whilst people sort of established those new ways of um, running their lives. Um, and I think people in the urban areas were maybe more able to do that. You know, those, those links were more easy to establish, mm -hmm. but in rural areas, there was a huge amount of hardship. Um, you know, I can remember, you know, going somewhere and stopping on the side of the road as you would usually do to buy curios. Um, so you know, loads of, you know, beautiful, um, things made, you know, out of wood and whatever by very talented people all over the country. And they didn't want cash. 
because by the time they would be able to get the cash to anywhere that they could use it to buy medicine or food or whatever, it would be worthless. Mm -hmm. So they were much more interested in, you know, real goods, T-shirts, um, you know, shoes. Yeah, well, that, that, that's, that's a question. That was a follow-up question I had, which is, do you, do you have a rule of thumb for when the inflation rate essentially becomes meaningless? I mean, I mentioned 80 billion percent in the intro, but, but what can that possibly mean? I mean, at that stage, no one's going to use the currency, right? Um, except for the, you know, the currency was the way that the government collected tax. And um, it's one of the, you know, when I was presenting this work initially um, in, in Trinity, I can remember one of the questions was about the, the tax um, raising hmm. ability of the government. Um, and actually, that was one of the things that they did quite well. <laughs> so that was one of the last things to, uh, to fall away, you know, so if they had any resources or any, you know, strategic response, it was to make sure that they carried on collecting tax yeah. revenue. And because that was denominated in the domestic currency, there was a lot of, um, you know, uh, pressure to carry on collecting that. So there it was enforced that the domestic currency was the one that was used, um, you know, in any kind of formal setting. So, you know, and there were, there were substantial sanctions if you were found to be using hard currencies instead of the mm. Zimbabwe dollar. So, you know, people were imprisoned um, sort of regularly, um, you know, it was really a stressful time. Like if you were in business at all, it's sort of the rule of thumb was don't go to work on a Friday mm. afternoon because you, you know, that's when the police will come around and, and do their checks and you'll be in prison overnight because you won't right. be able to get it over the weekend because you won't be able to get a lawyer. So although there was huge pressure to, um, you know, and, and one of the real assets that people could accumulate um, or there was huge demand for was hard currency, um, especially the US dollar. Um, but it was a sort of a very risky strategy because mm. um, of this, uh, you know, big pushback from the government. So it was, but ultimately that did fail. So, so the government was able to, um, to insist that everybody use a currency until sort of late 2008. And that's why in the paper, the sort of empirical analysis only runs to sort of early mid 2008, um, mm. because really from the middle of 2008 onwards, you know, despite the government's best efforts, people were using alternate currencies increasingly because as you say, like, you know, it was just sort of meaningless. Mm. Um, and not only, you know, not only was it, the inflation rate itself and the the rapidity with which prices had to change um, but also there was real problems with physically obtaining cash so um, in the book when we compare when we're um, uh, measuring the, the the price series you know establishing a mm. new one one of the things we consider you know we consider kind of six price series one of which um, was the cash rate one of which was the hard-boiled egg, egg yeah. which, one of which is the cash cash rate so at the end of the week or the months whenever businesses and there was still manufacturing and you know some retail and and obviously there were some farmers um, commercial farmers 
um, some mining, you know, some sort of um, engineering supporting supporting the mining activities, um, all very labor intensive. You know, when when business owners were looking to pay their staff. Um, predominantly in cash, very few people were banked at that time in the country, mm. and also there had been various banks that collapsed, so people were very reluctant to use banks. Um, finding actual physical cash was a big problem, so um, the, the government couldn't keep up, couldn't the printing presses couldn't keep up with the amount of physical cash that was needed in order to facilitate even basic economic activity with prices rising that quickly. So, first of all you know, the slot in the ATM machine is only kind of less than an inch high. And that's mm. actually not enough, not enough space to get the amount of notes out that you <laughs> need to stand there for hours in order to get the amount of notes out that you would need to kind of buy a loaf of bread. Mm. So you would have these queues outside banks, uh, people turning up with duffel bags, you know, in order to get these bricks of cash out of mm. the bank. Um, but there were daily limits to how much you could get. So business owners had to pursue other strategies. So for example, purchasing cash from <laughs> high cash, you know, from high cash turnover businesses, for example, takeaways. Mm -hmm. So there was um, a, a domestic chain of takeaway, a takeaway chain that was had a presence sort of throughout all the towns and cities. Um, and they would sell cash to other business owners in order that they would be able to pay their wages. So they would get an electronic transfer, a huge premium, mm -hmm. um, and and then hand over the physical cash. So it really so people started spending a lot of time yeah. <laughs> just negotiating. You know the what high, very high inflation over an extended period of time means for an economy, um, hugely inefficient. So when you learn about menu and shoe leather costs mm. as, as an economics undergraduate, um, <laughs> that's what it looks like. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Yeah. Well, the, the opacity in the data meant that you had to develop, as you, you mentioned earlier, you had to develop a couple of tools to conduct the study. The first was, the, was a new price index, and the second was a model of money demand. Yes. Um, can you talk us through those and and how it was that you found them to be more accurate than other proxies like like the hardboard egg index, <laughs> etc. Yes. Um, so the, so this work um, is based on my first PhD paper, and um, Patrick Hunahan was um, a really fun supervisor. Hmm. So you know it was kind of an evolving um, an evolving thing. Um, so we had a look at the IMF work that had been done on the inflation in Zimbabwe in the sort of very early 2000s mm. um, by Manaz and Kovanen. And those are really interesting, but they found that um, money demand, real money demand, uh, sorry, real money balances sort of increased around 2005, 2006, which was really strange, um, you know, given both the lived experience and also the sort of predictions of um, a money demand model during periods of high inflation. So we, we thought about it and, um, 
you know, we talked initially about, well, maybe there's a timing issue between when the, the um, money balances, the nominal money balances in the country are published, say end of month by the Reserve Bank, and when prices are gathered. And indeed that was the case. So prices were gathered in the middle of the month um, and money, you know, the money balances were published as end of month figures. So that helped a little bit, but then we, we realized that was very small um, impact. And what was really going on was the, the basket of goods that the CSO was able to gather information on was just not reflective of um, the, the true price levels, the true um, inflation rates in the country. So the CSO was just not able to keep up with um, with the basket, the evolution of the basket of goods and how they were priced. Um, and similarly, when it comes to, you know, hyperinflation, sort of the price level needs to be known on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. So, um, for example, when prices are going up, you know, so rapidly, wages need to be renegotiated very frequently. So perhaps usually wages are renegotiated once a year. It became sort of um, twice a year in 2003, maybe. And um, then it became monthly and then it became weekly that wages were adjusted. Um, um, So you needed a much more timely, um, easily available um, price series. Um, Or when you're thinking about estimating the money demand function, um, thinking about series that were available at a much more regular frequency to the agents in the economy. Mm. Um, And so, as I said before, when the inflation rate became very high, and even in the you know earlier periods in the 90s um, and the 80s, you know foreign exchange was an asset that everybody knew the value of, and um, you know everybody was trying to accumulate um, in order to hedge, um, you know, as well as other things. Mm. So there wasn't there there were various ways that you could measure sort of the um, real or the sort of black market. Um, exchange rate, the, the the official exchange rate was not so useful for that, um, mm. although that plays kind of an important role in the hyperinflation in general. But um, the, the parallel market rate or the black market rate, I guess, um, is something which, which, you know, large numbers of people from all walks of life would have kind of known on a daily basis. And that's how people thought about prices. So, so that's what we kind of aimed for. Um, mm. And, and it, was, it was really fun. So it involved kind of um, developing relationships with people in the private sector um, finance company that used to publish this data regularly. Um, and then also trips to the British Library to find the World Currency Yearbook um, parallel market rates for the country for the sort of 80s and early 90s. Um, it was kind of a, a detective. <laughs> detective experience in some ways and, and, and you concluded from that that the hyperinflation began six months earlier than the reserve bank had uh, concluded how did they get that so wrong it's to do with um the way that they were measuring prices so they were not uh they were resource constrained i think it was the the central statistics office actually mm. um they were resource resource constrained um that you know they weren't able to measure the you know price of the uh, 
meaningful basket of goods that, um, you know, informed the sort of aggregate price level in the country. Mm. There's also a lot of um, disincentive for the CSO or the monetary authority to acknowledge that inflation, you know, was as high as it was. Mm. So, um, you know, there were also difficulties there, which we see in other countries um, when they go into high inflationary periods, for example, in Latin America. Um, yeah. Yes, so. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's certainly true. Well, a, a really intriguing part of the book is, is your discussion of, and we mentioned at the beginning, this, this, this idea of uh, seigneurage maximisation by the state. And you find that from independence until the hyperinflationary peak, an inflation rate of 27% per month, so roughly half Kagan's definition, would have maximised seigneurage revenue. And that the seigneurage revenue stream essentially converged with this maximization stream from 2000 onwards. And as you point out with a bit of understatement, um, you know, the, the, the policy in this respect is inherently short run. But what, what wasn't clear to me, are, are you suggesting this was, this was ever a conscious policy decision to do this? Um, I mean... <laughs> I think I think you know the government's budget deficit was huge um, in in it was substantial for the entirety almost the entirety of the country's independent history. But when the productive capacity of the country collapsed in the early two thousands due to the fast track land reform process you know, which is a conversation for the other day, for another day. And, you know, there was definitely need for redistribution, but the way that it was carried out meant that the agricultural productive capacity um, collapsed and agriculture formed the inputs for a lot of the domestic manufacturing. So domestic manufacturing also collapsed. Um, and that's where, that was the tax base, you know, formal sector employment and um, privately owned businesses. So when those things collapsed um, and there was no replacement from the international donor community, um, monetary financing was one course of action. And then I do think that the, that the seniorage revenue streams, you know, became important towards the end. Um, mm. And, you know, one of the things that wasn't clear to Patrick and I when we kind of thought about this was, you know, how expensive would it be to, to run this as a policy? Like, yeah. you know, they really have the printing presses running all the time. They were actually importing the, the banknotes from Europe from, um, a, from a German company, you know, because it, it is important that the banknotes are not um, easily counterfeited. Mm. So they did have costs, you know, substantial costs um, associated with printing so much money all the time. Um, and yet, you know, the, the senior hours revenue that they were generating, you know, was really substantial. And... Um, yeah, so I think it could have been um, an act of policy um, towards the end, very short-lived. That is amazing. <laughs> um, the, the, the authorities, or at least the, the Zona PF side, uh, always claimed that the main reasons for the hyperinflation were sanctions and price speculation, and which is, sounds like the kind of thing the Venezuelan authorities say today. You come to a different conclusion. Um, on what basis? Um, so again, it's kind of 
you know, interesting how the narrative evolved. So when I was thinking about the paper, formulating the paper, um, you know, that is definitely what the, the government was saying at the time. And when I presented that, you know, the research proposals and whatever to senior academics in Dublin, for example, um, you know, it comes across as kind of a straw man, mm. you know, something easy to uh, to disprove. But it was a really pervasive narrative in the country at the time that price speculation was was the problem. And then when sanctions were imposed <clears throat> in the sort of, you know, early 2000s, um, you know, that then became the second sort of dominant um, narrative. And it really took hold and was quite persuasive, you know. And so there was, um, you know, there was support in in fairly wide-based support, I think, initially for some price controls, um, you know, in order to try and deal with sort of this private sector price speculation and whatever. And then, you know, the, the absence of goods on the shelves and, you know, chronic shortages and basic commodities, you know, then I think people started to realize that it was a sort of more complex issue. So empirically, um, you know, you can test whether prices cause um, money supply to expand or vice versa. Um, mm. Ideally, you would have an instrument, which I couldn't find an instrument um, for the empirical analysis, but I used two sort of different empirical approaches and they seemed to suggest that prices were not self-perpetuating, that there was, that the relationship ran um, from money to prices rather than the other way around. Mm. Um, and then, you know, as to whether sanctions caused the hyperinflation, I mean, you know, as I said before, the huge contraction in the tax base in the early 2000s meant that there was, you know, very, very large unfinanced um, government deficits. And, you know, it's hard to know whether the authorities really expected international agencies to fund, for example, the fast track land reform process as it was implemented. Mm. Um, you know, there are differences of opinion about the the quality of the Lancaster House Agreement um, that sort of dealt with land ownership, you know, at independence and all the way through to the late 90s. Um, so, you know, it's difficult to know whether the authorities sort of could legitimately have expected aid agencies to sanction or partly fund the land reform as it was mm -hmm. um, implemented. But the reality is that you know, the, uh, there wasn't substantial amounts of money forthcoming and there was a huge hole in the budget deficit, you know, in the budget. So, you know, which had to be financed somehow. So I guess in a roundabout way, you know, that was a contributing factor. Although we do say, we do find in the book that, um, you know, assistance, uh, development assistance remained forthcoming at similar orders of magnitude than before 2000, all the way through the period um, yeah. under investigation in the book. So it's not that there wasn't any um, international assistance, it's just that the international assistance did not come, you know, to fund the, the fast track land reform um, 
which I guess, you know, was a factor. Yeah. Now, you point out that out of all the other hyperinflations, this is in Chapter 3 again, uh, the way Zimbabwe ended its episode was unique because it withdrew its own currency and replaced it with the US dollar because the government became convinced um, it couldn't regain sufficient credibility with the new domestic currency, which is the typical response. There are varying accounts for who was responsible for this, whether it was um, Patrick Chinamasa from the ZANU-PF government or from uh, Tendai Beatty when he joined the government of national unity. Do, do, do you happen to know? I don't know. Mm. Um, I think, you know, Tendai Beatty was a, an important and positive force for change um, when he held that that ministerial position. And, you know, the the currency, the suspension of the domestic currency and the adoption of the um, hard currencies, US dollar and South African rand, you know, saw, you know, rapid stabilization of prices and, you know, return to some normality for um, consumers, and producers, employers. Um, so, but unfortunately, the reforms were only partially implemented. Mm. Um, that that you know was the problem that it, there wasn't full implementation of the reforms. So you kind of need to reintroduce credibility in the currency. And as you say, the Zimbabwean um, policy to suspend the domestic currency um, is 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 fairly unique. But you also need to, you know, implement substantial fiscal consolidation um, mm. in order that these large gaps in, you know, government expenditure are are shored up. Um, and that, of course, has, you know, substantial short-term negative impacts um, if it's to do with um, state wages or state services um, or investment in state agencies. So it was that piece that, that you know, was not fully implemented, that reform mm-hmm. piece. And then thirdly, you know, and it's sort of, you know, broadly accepted in lots of places that you need independence between the monetary authority and the fiscal authority. Yeah. Um, and that also was not implemented. I'm not really sure if that was even mooted, uh, but... Yeah. So actually, the I'm, I was just looking at um, the IMF's 2020 article for um, on Zimbabwe, and the language they use is, um, <laughs> you know, they they describe it as an as Zimbabwe as experiencing hyperinflation again. Right. So at the end of end of 2019, the inflation rate was uh, 521%. They say, um, with you know 50% of people food insecure. Um, GDP contracted by 8.3% in 2019, not expected to grow at all in 2020. Um, and this was kind of before COVID-19. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you don't implement those three things in a sort of credible, consistent way, you know, Zimbabwe indicates, you know, what can happen then. Um, are, are, you still, are you still running the model, actually? I mean, because do, do you know... Do you have an estimate for where inflation is now compared to where officially it is? I don't. I don't. That would be interesting um, <laughs> yeah. to have a look at. Um, 
Yeah, and actually one of the challenges I think the country faced when it introduced the hard currencies was because it was an informal adoption, like there was no formal agreement with South Africa, for example, to mm. use the currency. Um, there was a preference domestically for using at least in some places for using the South African Rand, in part because um, the the size of the denominations of US dollars were just too big for most goods mm -hmm. and services um, that were that would be exchanged in Zimbabwe. But because there was no formal um, agreement, you know, to enter a currency area or use use the currency, there were huge currency shortages in, in 2009, 10, 11 of foreign currency, um, in part because, you know, the productive capacity was so, was so reduced. And so there was very little export going on, very little, um, you know, foreign currency generating activity occurring. So there was also some domestic pressure of pressure from uh, consumers and producers to introduce a local currency in order to deal with the currency shortages. You know, they had experienced substantial currency um, shortages during the hyperinflation. And this was of a different type, you know, to do with the denomination of notes and, um, you know, unavailability of foreign currency um, in Zimbabwe, you know, so it was, there was sort of a demand, um, you know, from producers and consumers rather than something imposed by the Reserve Bank um, or the government in any way. So I think that's kind of an interesting aspect of it. Um, so initially, just sort of very small denomination um, coins were introduced the, as, the, as a new currency, the Zimbabwe local currency. Um, and then it's been, you know, more formalized since then. Mm. Um, but a shame that those other reforms hadn't been introduced. Yeah. Well, uh, finally, because this is a podcast about books, I ask, <laughs> I ask every guest for a book choice, and, and I did warn you in advance. So w what is your recommendation? Um, I really like um, Invisible Woman by Caroline Credo Perez, something completely um, different. Yep. But again, sort of economist as detective and policy advocate, um, and probably reflect reflective of some of the, you know, still distributional issues that I'm interested in, but um, sort of gender gap issues as well. But I also, um, I re also really love um, Chomanda Ngozi Adichie's work. Um, so Half of a Yellow Sun is, you know, phenomenal, but Americana, you know, the sort of story of an African migrant in a cold Northern country. Um, mm. <laughs> I really yeah. like that as well. <laughs> you, you can empathize with that. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, today I have been talking to Tara Makindo Calder about her hyperinflation in Zimbabwe background impact and policy published by Palgrove Pivot. Tara, thank you again for joining the podcast. Thanks, Tim.